Today's reading comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your word. We acknowledge and confess that it is true. And we ask, Lord, that your gospel would be clear to your people, that it would encourage those in need of encouragement, challenge those in need of challenge, correct those in need of correction, and bind up those who are brokenhearted. All to your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A world in chaos, a world in seemingly constant warfare, where one nation takes land from others and oppresses their people, where tyrants seem to prosper and the righteous suffer injustice, where the costs of war are disproportionately borne by the poor and the innocent, a world where even among God's people, wandering from him and giving mere lip service to religion seems easier and better than faithfulness. A world in darkness where might makes right and the wrong seems oft so strong. A world without peace. Depending on your perspective and your reflections in this Advent season and the worries you may bear, you may have thought I was describing the world of today the world of Isaiah's day, or the world of Jesus' day. In any case, you'd be right. That description fits all three. You know, there are some promises of Christmas that seem to be fantasy for the one with their eyes open to the suffering around them and the suffering in our world. Some of these promises of Christmas, they seem to be lies. The promise of peace is one of them. And because of this, we can become jaded, both to the reality of war and death, 
We can become jaded to the reality of conflict and sin in our lives. And we can doubt the promise of a Prince of Peace who comes to us at Christmas, thinking it's inauthentic and it can't be real. You know, I love the story of C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In it, this evil witch has turned the magical land of Narnia into a land of perpetual winter and sorrow. One of the characters, Mr. Tumnus the Fawn, he describes the condition of the land to Lucy, one of the children and heroes of the story. And he says, it is winter in Narnia, and it has been forever so long, always winter and never Christmas. That is a good description of what you may see when you look at our world and refuse to avert your eyes. When we look at our lives and the lives of those we love and refuse to ignore the sin or the suffering. In our world, as in our lives, it seems we are in a season of perpetual winter, perpetual advent, longing for a promised peace, longing for a Christmas that is always Beyond reach. Isaiah 9 comes to us as a promise from God to a people who are besieged and oppressed, but who are also sinful and wandering from the Lord. It's the promise of a God, sorry, and the promise of God to them is of a child king who will come and reign and bring peace to his people and peace to the world from his eternal throne in their midst. As we look at this promise, What I want you to see is that our ultimate hope for peace, our ultimate hope for peace, peace with God, peace in our lives, and peace in this world is found in Christ Jesus alone. Our only hope for peace is Jesus. But let's begin by looking at the darkness. That's what I've said we're going to do in this Advent season. It's an opportunity to stare deeply into the darkness of our day and our lives that we might experience the light and joy of Christmas in full and in honesty. Isaiah's promise, his prophecy opens with this beautiful statement that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. But what does Isaiah mean by the word darkness? Well, we have a few clues. In verse 1, he writes about this people living in gloom, another word for darkness, and they're from the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, you could certainly be excused for having absolutely no idea what that means. Um, We don't talk about the lands of Zebulun and Naphtali very much, um, pretty much only when we're talking about this prophecy at Christmas. Well, Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were part of the northern kingdom of Israel, um, Um, After Solomon, the the kingdom split into two. There was the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel, um, which was most of the the 12 tribes. And Zebulun and Naphtali were the first two to be deported into exile by the Assyrian Empire. Prior to being dragged away, though, the northern kingdom of Israel had struck an alliance with the nation of Syria. Not to be confused with modern-day Syria and not to be confused with Assyria, it gets confusing. Um, it struck this alliance, and, but then together, Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria had attacked the southern kingdom of Judah, trying to overthrow it. Brother fighting against brother. 
In chapter 8, Isaiah condemns the northern kingdom of Israel for their alliance with Syria, saying that they had rejected God's saving power, preferring the protection of a powerful but wicked ally, not to mention they attacked their brothers in Judah. What all this means, all this context, this history, it means that Isaiah has a lot in mind when he's thinking about darkness. There was the darkness of suffering and exile that the people of Zebulun and Naphtali were experiencing even then. But there was also the darkness of sin. Wandering from God by trusting in their Syrian allies for strength, even though God says, trust in me. And that's another story from another part of, of the Old Testament. God didn't want them to split allegiances. Their darkness was both from without and from within. It was a darkness of war and suffering as well as a darkness of sin. And there was no peace in the darkness. You know, while Isaiah is referring to a very specific historical situation with these words, it's right for us to see in this darkness a a reflection of our own darkness both personally and as the church and in the world. Because the promise of Isaiah's prophecy is far bigger than just these two tribes in the northern kingdom of Israel. In fact, it was far bigger than they could have ever understood or imagined. An eternal kingdom of peace that covers the world. But as we think about our darkness, we have to consider it the same way. We have to think about both suffering and sin as well. Like Zebulun and Naphtali, we too make unholy alliances in our hearts with the world and its pleasures and powers to obtain a peace that will not last. We look for protectors like Israel looked to Syria to establish our comfort, sometimes at the expense of others. What would Isaiah say to us? But we also, in our sin, we turn from God and seek our advantage at our brother's expense. Like Israel sought its own security when attacking Judah, so in our time, we sin and we harm our neighbors. You know, in our men's Bible study this past week, we've been going through the book of 1 Samuel. We meet over in the corner back there, and it's a wonderful group. I've really been enjoying the insights of these men. But in this study in in 1 Samuel, the prophet Samuel, he criticizes Israel for demanding a king to protect them. Um, It's it's when Saul had just been crowned and before David had been anointed. Um, And he's criticizing them in his farewell address for demanding a king to protect them because they already had God as their king. And he'd been faithful. They wanted a salvation, you see, that they could see and touch. And they wanted a king who looked the part big, strong guy, wasn't faithful. That was Saul. I don't think we're all that different. We too can look to this world for our security, whether it's to politicians, to financial advisors, or to the opinions of others to build us up and make us feel special. Advent's an opportunity to examine your own hearts and ask yourself, what are you trusting in? Where is your hope for peace and security in this world? 
But darkness comes not only from sin, but from suffering. And perhaps that's what you are experiencing most keenly in this Advent season. Like the suffering of of exile, peace can be difficult to obtain in a season of grief, terminal illness, or loss. You know, I've known those for whom such suffering produces a lasting feeling of darkness or a sense of being abandoned by God and left without hope. We ask why and can't come up with an answer. Whether from suffering or sin, we really can relate to the gloom of Zebulun and Naphtali, longing for a peace that's beyond reach. But you know, I'd be remiss if I stopped there. Because our passage goes beyond the personal experience of suffering and sin to the global problem of conflict in our world. There truly is a darkness that we see and experience in our world. Our passage today promises a day when the weapons and clothes of war will be destroyed. But we live in a world of wars and rumors of war. It's a situation that characterizes life in this time between Christ's first coming and his return. Whether it's the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the seemingly never-ending conflict in the Middle East over the land of Israel, Palestine, or the refugee crisis in Sudan's Darfur region spurred on by two warring generals, we see seemingly endless darkness as people in these conflicts are driven from their homes, when non-combatants are dragged away into captivity, when families are separated, when almost unspeakable sexual violence is used as a weapon of war. We see darkness when the poor and the vulnerable become acceptable losses as collateral damage. But also God's people suffer such oppression of darkness as well. You know, I recall at the outset of the conflict in Ukraine, hearing from our denominational missionaries serving there, accounts of evangelical Christian pastors with whom they had worked, encountering imprisonment, possible torture, and the destruction of their churches back when Russia's armies invaded Crimea in 2014. Similar stories have been repeated in recent years and even to today. In the Middle East, even as the nation of Israel mourns and responds to the indescribably evil acts of Hamas on Israeli civilians living near the border of Gaza, even now, innocents are tragically paying the price of the response disproportionately. And there are still generations of Arabs, including a large Arab Christian minority, waiting in lands and refugee camps where they have lived in exile, longing for a return and a homeland. There is so much darkness, so much darkness in our hearts, in our lives, in this world, from without and from within. Where is God in the midst of it? Where is his promise of peace? What is his response? How will there be light in the darkness? Peace for God's people and the world. I think the answer comes in our passage, beginning in verse 1. It says that in the future, God will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. 
Now, Galilee was a region in the land of Naphtali and Zebulun. It's also where Jesus' ministry began. In the Gospel of Matthew, this promise from Isaiah 9, this promised blessing from Galilee is fulfilled in Christ Jesus. He is the light that shines in the darkness, bringing peace to his gloomy people. What's amazing about these promises in verses 2 through 4 which showcase the blessing of this coming light of of Jesus, is that they are written in a way that describes a completed act. This is important for us to catch. What we call the past tense, it's verb tense in Hebrew is very confusing. Um, It says, they have seen a great light. You have enlarged the nation. You have shattered the yoke that oppresses your people, etc., It's speaking of accomplished acts. Even though nothing he is describing has occurred or will occur for another 600 years, Isaiah is saying it's done. It's accomplished. For him, the promise of peace is certain, not when it appears, not when we see it and feel it and touch it, but when it is promised. I think that is so important for us to remember in the midst of our darkness. The promise is certain when it is promised, not when we experience it. Scripture treats the promises of God for the future as a certainty that has already been accomplished, not a mere possibility or pie-in-the-sky fantasy. And that is so hard to believe when we are in the darkness, the darkness of suffering and sin. That the hope of peace is a certainty for those who trust in the Lord, no matter how deep the darkness. Do you believe it's true? Are the promises of a Messiah and a Savior who can overcome our sin and overcome our conflict, do you believe that they're true and that they're for you and for this world? To understand how the light of Christ Jesus brings hope, though, we have to look ahead to how he is named In verse 6, it says there, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, many years at Covenant of Grace, we've reflected deeply on those names, and I'm not going to do that at length here except in a very simple way. While we experience the darkness of sin that separates us from God, Jesus came as the Prince of Peace to bring peace with God to his people. He did this at his own cost, by bearing in our place sin's cost and rising to give us new life. He brought peace by his blood shed upon the cross. As Romans 5.1 says, since we have been justified through faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our Prince of Peace by bearing the cost of its accomplishment in his own body for us. Going on, where formerly we had wandered from him in sin, making ourselves God's enemies and in a state of war with him, he is the wonderful counselor. And that word counselor, it can refer to an attorney who's arguing on our behalf. He stands and defends us in the dock as an attorney in a court of law. And guess what? He's really good at it. 
He's really, really good. He's the best lawyer you could ever have. I'm sorry to the lawyers in this room, but you just don't cut it compared with our Savior. He's perfect, and he never loses a battle. His blood covers a multitude of sins. As our everlasting Father, he protects us as his own, not his subjects, but his children, for whom he lays down his comfort and his life. And as our mighty God, which is a warrior image, he protects us, holding our lives and futures secure in him. Brothers and sisters, he came to us as our Savior and Redeemer to make us who were God's enemies his much-loved children, to bring us peace with him. That is the good news of the gospel, and it is true and accomplished. But you know, the peace promised for us is not only for us with God, it's for us with one another. Looking back at our passage, something it's easy to forget when looking at this passage is that Isaiah is writing to the people of Judah, the people in the southern kingdom, the land that the northern kingdom of Israel had just attacked and betrayed. So when he promises that the people from Zebulun and Naphtali are receiving this light of blessing in a Messiah, he's essentially telling Judah, hey, guess what? You want God's blessing? Well, guess what? God is going to show kindness to your enemies who just attacked you. It's actually a promise of being one people with those from whom they were estranged and with whom they were in conflict. For us, this means that the peace God brings to us is a peace which flows out to our neighbors and even to our enemies. In this Advent season, it is appropriate for us to reflect on the conflicts we experience in our lives and long that God would bring his peace to bear in our hearts and our relationships. The reason for this is that there is no place for self-righteousness or unforgiveness when you sit at the foot of the cross in humility. The gospel of peace is the great equalizer among human beings, for there is nothing a man can do to earn it. There is no pedigree that merits it. It comes only by grace, grace alone. We only ever sit at the foot of the cross, not above it, looking down. And that demands humility and forgiveness from those who trust in Jesus. So peace with God, peace with one another. But what about our world and its wars? How can we say that Jesus brings peace when human conflict in the two millennia since him, since his advent, has only become worse, worse and worse and worse? Doesn't the fact that wars continue and grow worse display that Isaiah's promise isn't true? In my office, I have a canvas copy of a painting done by a Ukrainian artist named Irenaeus Yurchuk. He lives in New York, and he kindly, personally, gave me permission to print a copy of it and hang it on my wall. And so we have one there, and we have one hanging over our mantle at home. It's a painting of a traditional Orthodox nativity scene with Joseph, Mary, and the baby, set right in the middle of the painting. But it's in a non-traditional surroundings. They're set in the bombed-out rubble of a Ukrainian apartment building. 
I spent much time contemplating that picture when I first saw it and then realized that it was accompanied by the words out of our text for today. But rather than beginning in verse 6, with the promise that we love to reflect on at Christmas, where we generally start our Christmas reflections, it included verse 5 and connected the two together. The pro- connected the promise of a child savior with the promise of the end of warfare. And I actually think, after reflecting on it, that we should always read it this way. Let me read it for you. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, jumping ahead of the government or of his greatness and his government and peace. There will be no end. Until I saw that painting and reflected on it along with this passage, I had never paused to wonder what came before the four in verse six. What it's saying is that because of the Messiah, because of this baby in the manger, all war will come to an end. We can burn the uniforms and the boots and the bloody garments because they won't be needed anymore. That painting I have in my office is a reminder that Jesus didn't come into a scene of calm and contentment and ease. He came into our mess and our war and our conflict and our sin, and he came to overcome all of it, leaving no shred of corruption undealt with. There is an undeniable militarism to this prophecy that we cannot spiritualize away. We cannot merely make it about the individual and the Lord, but also about the Lord and his world, a world in darkness. Isaiah is not merely promising an end to the oppression of sin, but an end to the oppression of corrupt human power and rule, an end to war and conflict. And while a child is promised, the image we are ultimately given of him is not one of humility, but one of power Conquest and glory. And that's because Isaiah's prophecy, it doesn't merely point to the coming of Christ at Christmas, but to his return when he comes in glory to make all things new. It is a message for the total coming of Christ, both his first and his final, to enter our mess and save his people. In the first coming, he comes to establish peace with God, and in the second he comes to eradicate the mess and bring glory to his people. What that means for us is that it is right to long for peace in this world. It is right and good to hate war. I am no pacifist. If you are, that's totally fine. I have wonderful Christian friends who are. But it is right to look forward to a day when every warrior's boot will be fuel for the fire. That is an Advent longing. I believe this passage in Isaiah serves as a helpful lens through which we can look at our war-filled world. First, it tells us that wars will continue until the day when Christ reigns supreme. There is no actual war to end all wars. The optimistic vision for the future that so much of our fiction portrays is not able to be accomplished by human effort. It's an aspect of the world in which we live that will not come to an end by human might or power. 
As Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Second, it tells us that war, although unavoidable in this age of darkness, is never something to long for or desire. It is never something that is a good You know, I have such immense respect for the men and women who serve in the armed services, who lay down their lives and their comforts in the cause of bringing order and justice to a messy world. But I so long for the day when their service in this capacity is no longer needed, for no war is a clean and glorious affair. And no army on earth brings about the eternal peace of the kingdom of God. No army brings about God's kingdom, the kingdom promised here in Isaiah. It will be God alone by his own might and power who does this. That's what the end of our passage says. In many ways, this prophecy is an indictment against the sinful leadership of Isaiah's day, telling them, no, not by your might and armies. That's not how God will bring about his kingdom of peace. No, in verse 7 it says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It is as true today as it was then. As we think about our world today and its wars and conflicts, our nation and its struggles and our struggles with neighbor against neighbor conflict, we can wonder what our purpose and place in the midst of it is. What is our hope to be for this world? What are we to be about as the church? We see in God's word a picture of his kingdom and see here the promise of everlasting peace. And we can think that our mission is by might and by power to accomplish it, to bring it to bear, to build God's kingdom for us, for him. But what Isaiah says, what scripture says is that we are not the kingdom builders. No, the the city of God's peace is one that he alone builds. We will not accomplish the fulfillment of God's promises. No, restoration, it is the work of God alone. And he will accomplish this work not through the might of human armies, but through his own power and might when he comes again in glory. The kingdom of God comes not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Until the day when our Savior comes in glory, we will live in a world marked by conflict. We live in Advent. We live in Advent. But Christmas is coming. As God's people, we must live under the rule of our Prince of Peace and long for the peace that he promises. As the psalmist says, we must seek peace and pursue it. Peace which is not the absence of conflict, but the presence of God's rule in our lives and relationships until the day he comes again. Brothers and sisters, that's how we can look at the world today and not grow jaded to its war and to its suffering. That's how we can see the brutality of war and its confusion and injustice and not despair in the midst of it. Because he's here in the midst of it. He's here in the middle of our mess, like that nativity painting showcasing the presence of Christ Jesus in our war-torn world. We are to be like that presence, bearing light in the darkness as we live with him as our king and living by his means. 
In Christ, he has brought us peace with God at his own cost. But finally, he holds out the promise that, as our, that our present conflict is not the end of the story. We are always a people looking forward, longing for his return, longing for the day when he comes again and makes all things new. And when he does, he will put an end to all of it, to the war, to the injustice that marks our world when he makes everything new again. Until that day, pray, church. Pray for the Prince of Peace to come into the world. Pray, come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Pray and seek the peace of your neighbor and their good. Live as a people of peace in a world of conflict. Pray for him to capture the hearts of those who fight. And do not set aside the longing for him to make all things new. For only where the Lord is king will there be true and lasting peace. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that in you alone is our hope for ultimate peace. We pray, Lord, for those who serve in war. We pray, Lord, that you would be their light, that they would trust in you. We pray, Lord, for an end to conflict, and we pray for justice in this world. But, Lord, we also long for the day when you come again and we can burn the boots and the bloody uniforms. Put them to rest, for you reign supreme over all. Help us, Lord, to live as a people who long for that day, long to see you face to face, and long for your world to be made new in peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.